welcome Appearances are deceiving. <laughs> but really, like Maharaj has so much experience in like sharing bhakti yoga and going deep into the philosophy of bhakti yoga, and he gives talks in like different universities, North America, South America, Europe, India, and uh, it's actually a great fortune to have him here. And uh, he's actually uh, got his PhD from Harvard University, and also has like many publications. He's also author of many books. There's so much to So thank you all for coming. Um, I chose that topic, can there be a true spiritual science? Because I thought it would be a good um, starting point for a philosophical discussion. So <clears throat> I'm just going to go through some basic philosophical steps here. And uh, I'll start by saying that in order for there to be a science of anything, uh, we have to be talking about something that really exists. Because you can't really have a science of something that doesn't exist. And I think we could say that you can't really have a science of something whose existence is in doubt or not confirmed. You can apply the tools, the methods of science to something which may or may not exist. To give an example, when I was doing my undergraduate work at UCLA, <clears throat> I remember there was an astronomer there, astronomy professor, who was searching for brown dwarfs. And uh, a dr brown dwarf is something like a uh, contender on the universe has got talent, but that didn't get the red button or that, um, you know, didn't make it into the finals. So a brown dwarf is a celestial body that is sort of on the way to becoming a a sun or a star and uh, it just doesn't make it. The internal combustion doesn't 
heat up enough and so it's it, you know it doesn't make the cut it becomes a brown dwarf and for a while um astronomers predicted or uh believed that there were such things because their equations indicated to them that there should be such things and there was a ucla astronomer who is one of the people that found it and they and so they ultimately found it but until they actually found a brown dwarf couldn't really say there was a science of brown dwarfs. There was just the theory of a brown dwarf within astronomy, which was considered to be a science. I remember from my astronomy course that the uh, astronomers are actually very frustrated. They're the only academic field that did not get the ology name, is astrology. <laughs> Someone else got astrology, so they're, they've never quite gotten over that. But anyway, so I would say that in order for there to be a science of something, of anything, it has to actually exist. And um, so in order for there to be a spiritual science, there have to be spiritual things that actually exist. So I would argue here, being by nature argumentative, that um, we actually have evidence of real things that exist in the universe that are not physical or not material. And uh, to go back to the school of Aristotle, um, they use the terminology of uh, the physical and the metaphysical. Meta is a Greek term meaning after or beyond. And so the metaphysical is that which is beyond the physical. And so uh, if you believe in democracy, if you believe in equality, if you believe in justice, then in fact, and if you believe these things are real and not just someone's imagination, uh, then uh, you believe or you live in a, in a bi-dimensional universe. Uh, to give an example, take equality, which is such a huge thing uh, in our culture for centuries actually. And um, there's no empirical evidence that, for example, everyone here is exactly equal in every sense. Everyone here is not equal athletically, musically, mathematically, in terms of emotional IQ, in terms of, I mean, you name it. For example, North Carolina State University is somewhat competitive admissions. And uh, if everyone was equal, they would just have open admissions or maybe have some type of academic Hunger Games to see who gets to stay. But anyway, uh, if we look around, there's actually no empirical test which has ever been conceived by human beings that would tell us that we're all equal in anything. Those are the empirical facts. Now, a system of government has been set up in this country based on a belief, or you could say, knowledge, if you want to dignify it with the word knowledge, that um, despite, the, the, despite the fact that it goes against virtually all empirical information, there is a higher sense, a metaphysical sense in which we are equal and that therefore our empirical disparities or our empirical inequality has to be subordinated to a higher principle, which is a metaphysical equality. 
And this principle is actually stated very explicitly in the Declaration of Independence. If you read it uh, with some philosophical acumen. Declaration of Independence says that uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And I want to explain this philosophical term self-evident because it's key to understanding the proof for non-physical real things in the universe which form the basis of a metaphysical science. Um, Thomas Jefferson was a smart guy, well-read, and the notion of self-evident, uh, self-evident proof or self-evident truth, again, goes back to Aristotle. This is kind of Aristotle day, you know, honk if you like Aristotle, but <laughs> because Aristotle, who is considered the father of modern logic, raised the point that if you claim anything to be true, uh, you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. And uh, I'm not going to give the same old example. I always give. I can't stand it anymore. Okay, one more time. <laughs> if someone claims that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, and you say, prove it, so someone puts a pot of water on the stove and puts a thermometer in it and it boils at 100 degrees Celsius, well, the person can push you backwards, that's a regress, and say, well, I don't believe that's pure water. I believe you put some chemical in the water that alters the boiling temperature. Or uh, that's not real mercury in the thermometer. And then you've got to prove that. You've got to bring in water testing chemicals, and you've got to test the water testing chemicals. In other words, for anything you claim to be true, some can just say, prove that. And then when you bring the proof, they can say, prove that. So Aristotle claimed, and it's pretty much the way it is, that the way you escape an infinite regress of proofs is by uh, declaring or claiming that there is a truth which is self-evident, which proves itself. And therefore, if you don't get it, you just don't get it. To get, use an example, I've got to stop one day and just think of new examples because I'm boring myself. But anyway, <laughs> for example, let's say the sun is in the sky and someone denies the sun is shining. Let's say it's a you know, blue sky day, the sun is there, and someone denies that the sun is actually shining. So, uh, and everyone sees it, you know, all the, you know, you look at your phone and it says, you know, it's a sunny day. So at that point, there are really three possibilities. Actually four, one possibility is that everyone on earth, except this person is somehow deluded meteorologically or visually, which is very unlikely that everyone on Earth is deluded about this. So there are three other possibilities, namely that the person is is uh, speaking insincerely, either because of a joke or because of some mind game or whatever, or the person is visually impaired. Somehow their, you know, their vision is impaired. They can't see the sun or uh, the person is simply crazy. We're still allowed to use that word. So, um, but no one is really going to waste a lot of sleep saying, well, maybe everyone on earth is wrong. Maybe the sun, maybe there is no sun. Although actually, um, Descartes, the French philosopher Descartes, he finally moved beyond Aristotle. In his meditations, uh, he kind of did this, what would you call it, uh, mind experiment. He said, what if I doubt everything 
And uh, is there anything I can't doubt? I can't rationally doubt. And of course, he concluded that Koji do ergo sum. I, I, I'm thinking, therefore, I must exist. But he also said, what if we are brains or something like brains in the laboratory of some evil genius? And actually, right now, you are just being programmed to believe that there even is such a thing as North Carolina, not to speak of a state university of North Carolina, or that you're sitting here, and actually none of this is taking place. You are simply a brain in the laboratory of some crazy genius. Now, how will you prove that's not true? You can't prove it empirically. To give another similar example, uh, an experience we've all had, you go to sleep, you dream, and then you wake up. Now, when you wake up, you make a decision almost instantly that your dream state was somehow less, it, it was a lower state of reality than your awakened state. Now, you can't prove that because your dream is not empirically available. So there's no way in the world you can prove that when you woke up, you really woke up. And it's not that when you woke up, you're dreaming. And when you dream, you actually woke up. I mean, I don't, oh, bless you. <laughs> we'll probably get over it. It'll, we'll probably need counseling, but we'll get over it. So, So uh, the reason I'm bringing up these examples is because in our real life, in the real world, we have experiences that are self-evidently true. No one comes into our bedroom and tries to prove to us that we really woke up. It's self-evidently true. Or for example, let's say you want to be an empirical scientist. And um, to do empirical science, you have to make an assumption that you cannot prove. So it's not that science is based on proof. Well, a lot of it is, but the foundation is not based on proof. The foundation of empirical science is the belief that there's a real physical world outside your mind. And of course, this is similar to Descartes' example, what modern philosophers call the brain and the vet. So um, that's an example of a self-evident truth or something you claim to be a self-evident truth, namely that there's a real physical world outside your mind. My argument here will be that in the spiritual realm or in the metaphysical realm, we're doing the exact same thing. It's, uh, it's a parallel epistemic process. Epistemic meaning to, having to do with knowledge. In the sense that Let's say, for example, your belief that despite our athletic or musical or mathematical or emotional abilities, that somehow we're all equal. It's not that, let's say, uh, like in democracy, well, let's say it's not that if, if you go to court that they give you a test and then, you know, if you get a certain score, then you don't deserve justice because you're not really that valuable to society. And if you get a different score, then they'll go ahead and give you justice. And if you get a very high score, then you win your case. Saboteurs. And then if you, well, fortunately, I have a microphone and it seems like that machine is not amplified. So 
it's not that if you have a very high IQ or get very good grades or very good score on the GRE or the SAT that you uh, you automatically win your case. So you can't prove that we're equal. If you take two people, let's say one person got into NC State and one person didn't, so So in terms of that, bribe him. So in, so in terms of that test, you're not equal. So why do you claim that people are equal no matter what they got on their test, no matter how fast they can run 100 yards, no matter how musical they are, and so on and so forth? Why do you claim that we're equal? You can't empirically prove it. And you can, by the way. Because it's not about just about proving this group is equal to that group. It's about individuals. Individuals actually matter. And therefore, uh, how do you prove, I mean, how do you justify equal justice among people who have unequal abilities? I don't think anyone thinks about that because thinking is not like something that's really popular in this country right now. <laughs> but ultimately, we do make assumptions and, and i would say that we believe it is self-evident for example to give a horrible example let's say someone goes somewhere and kills a bunch of innocent people which just seems to become the become the national pastime or something let's say someone goes and kills innocent people and you say that's bad that's wrong that's evil empirically it's not empirically it's just a physical event so you can describe, let's let's say, a brutal, senseless, evil act of, of seriously harming or killing an innocent person, and you can empirically describe that event, and nowhere in your description will you find anything like immoral, bad, wrong. Let's say, for example, someone goes and kills an innocent person. Now, an empirical description or a you know, would simply say that this person committed an act which, according to the laws that are supposed to govern the society in which that person lived, that act was criminal. That's all you can say. That, according to the legal codes of the society in which the act was committed, the act is criminal. Now, if you want to go beyond that and say, well, no, the act was not merely criminal, it was actually evil, because Sometimes laws themselves are evil. For example, to give the old, you know, the, the cliche arg, uh, example, in Hitler's Germany, it was a criminal act to hide Jews and gypsies or, you know, handicapped people and you know, all the other people that, uh, you know, Hitler wanted to eliminate. So if you followed the law, you would commit an evil act. And if you did what was right, if you did what was morally good, you would commit a criminal act. And so therefore, empirical descriptions cannot tell us if something is actually good or bad. They're uh, value neutral, you could say. So I'm not give a lot more examples, but the point I'm getting at is that in our real lives, we actually believe that some non-empirical things are objectively real, like good and bad. And so um, 
the, the philosopher Kant talked about this, that we, we have this intrinsic moral instinct. I mean, Kant, I won't talk about all his, uh, the mess he made in metaphysics, but at least he said that. At least Kant said that, um, that we have these, these true moral instincts. So then you have to ask yourself, uh, what kind of universe do we live in if there are some things that are not physical but that are real and objective, things that actually exist but are not empirical? So, um, but to get back to my opening remarks, because you either have to accept that there are real metaphysical objects in the universe, and I would add to that, that uh, spiritual communities around the world, in all religions, in every world religion or just any religion that's big enough to get a full assortment of human types, uh, what you find is that um, there are some people that kind of have what you call blind faith, like, okay, my parents told me this, or the priest, or the rabbi, or the imam, or someone told me this. I don't really care that much about it, but this is our family religion. And therefore, these things are true. And also in every religion, you find people who actually are more serious. They, they want to have an encounter with God. And a very uh, beautiful expression of this uh, is, is found in a song written by a person who was trying to get across a Krishna conscious message. And that is uh, My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. Actually, a friend of mine was a good friend of George, suggested to him, hey, why don't you put Hare Krishna at the end of the song? So, and then he did. So, but anyway, the words of that are, I really want to see you, I really want to be with you. So, so you find people like this, just like George Harrison was very sincere. You find people like this in all religions who want to go beyond the rituals and actually want to have a direct encounter with God, however they understand that. Oh, well. See that? How powerful my gaze was? <laughs> if you, after the talk, if you give donations, I may perform another miracle. <laughs> so the point I'm getting at here is that um, if you speak to these people in all traditions, like for example, in Islam, there's a whole Sufi tradition, those that survived the violent persecutions by let's say, less philosophically oriented Muslims. But if you speak to the Sufis, if you speak to there, there are famous Jewish mystics and uh, certainly many Christian mystics. There's even something called bridal mysticism, uh, St. John of the Cross and uh, I think uh, Santa Teresa, where they talk, of, they see God as their, as, as their mate and they see themselves as a bride of God, just fully giving their heart to God. So, in, in, and, of course, in India, you have the whole yoga tradition. So that's kind of like, that, that's by far, I think, the, 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 the most, um, how should I put it, uh, highly developed, theologically, philosophically developed uh, tradition where you have this yoga and meditation, which is spread all around the world. And so, they, in fact, there was a famous uh, professor of, world religions of the 20th century, Eliade, who taught at the University of Chicago, who said that this whole yoga culture was the first, the world's first sort of deep psychology, 
They talk about sanskaras, the, the, the deep impressions on the mind, the, the subconscious. I mean, thousands of years before Freud, uh, these yogis were talking about the unconscious, the subconscious, and how we're conditioned by it and so on. And uh, one advantage they had over Freud is they you know, didn't take a lot of heavy drugs and, and, they, and they didn't hate religion. Actually, when I was at Harvard, I, I met this uh, really nice guy who was a, a Jesuit. He taught at Boston College and he, he actually um, took Freud's definitions and criteria for uh, psychopathology and he applied those criteria to Freud's attitude toward religion. And according to Freud's own criteria, his attitude toward religion was psychopathology. And I mean, there's a whole historical context of that, uh, his time in history, which I won't go into now. Anyway, so basically in all the, the you could say the spiritual, religious, metaphysical traditions of the world, there are huge numbers of people who are absolutely convinced that they've had a self-evident experience of God, of the soul, and so on. Now, someone may say, actually, they do say, atheists always say this. They're kind of predictable. By the way, I'll just add that atheism is actually bad philosophy. Agnosticism is not necessarily bad philosophy. Atheism is bad philosophy not because thou shalt not deny thy Lord. But it, it's, it's bad philosophy because if there's no God, then no one knows everything. And if no, no one is omniscient, no one knows if there's a God or not. So it's kind of like never say never. If there's no God, then no one knows everything. And therefore, you, you could never know. Even if there's not a God, you could never know it for sure. Because how would you know it? Because 99 point thousands of nines percent of all the things that are true in the world you don't know and one of those infinite things that you don't know could be god if you say agnosticism i don't know okay that's a i would say legitimate starting point for philosophy atheism is just silly it's like never say never but in any case um what atheists will always say is that, well, the fact that a, a very, very strong majority of all the human beings that ever lived on the earth believed in some type of divine reality, whether they were polytheists or monotheists and, or some kind or monists, whatever they were. Now, what they'll always say is, well, that doesn't prove anything. Or does it? Because if you say that this massive evidence doesn't prove anything, as they always say, then let's sort of philosophically abstract that. And what is, what are they actually saying? What they're saying in more abstract philosophical terms is that human evidence is not relevant to proving things. Human testimony uh, should not be considered when when you're trying to understand if something is real or not, or true or not. Now, if human testimony doesn't prove anything, isn't it human testimony that tells us, for example, that we shouldn't 
walk down the street killing people. Isn't it human testimony that tells us that science is reliable in certain areas? If we throw out all human testimony, what we're left with is basically cognitive chaos and, and clinical insanity. So in fact, even in philosophy, uh, authoritative testimony is a valid source of evidence. For example, let's say you want to be a doctor and you're studying things that people study when they want to be doctors. So now the fact is that it, it's only almost an infinitesimal amount of the knowledge you're given that you're going to personally prove. Like if you go into a laboratory and you actually get to prove something to yourself, although you can't really prove that you proved it to yourself because the reason I mentioned earlier. But so if you think of all the things that you think are true, like how many of you have ever vacationed in North Korea? <laughs> That's odd. No one. So how many of you believe that North Korea exists? Now, why do you believe North Korea exists? Because of human testimony. And the, I mean, we can give an infinite number of examples here. So therefore, to say, to simply say that massive human testimony over huge time periods and basically covering the entire planet, that this massive majoritarian human testimony is meaningless would really lead inexorably to a, a type of radical skepticism about human knowledge which would uh, just lead to absurdity. So it's an argument which easily leads to absurdity. So what we have to say rather is under what conditions is human testimony meaningful? Can we learn from history, from social science under what conditions human testimony tends to be unreliable. That's something they never do because, well, they just never do that. So uh, I'm gonna leave time for questions and, uh, and all that. So when Krishna consciousness in Bhakti Yoga, maybe I'll bring it back, bring it back home here. In Bhakti Yoga, um, we are not using you as guinea pigs, which I hope will you'll find encouraging. In the sense that uh, this bhakti yoga process has been practiced for thousands of years with great success. And uh, in fact, it not only has produced extraordinarily positive results in human beings individually for many, many thousands of years, but also uh, if you study all the available information that we have of ancient South Asia, India, we find that it actually inspired, enlightened, and sustained perhaps the most civilized society in human history, which compared with uh, other regions of the time was very, very advanced. Now, of course, we have information in ancient texts, which are considered to be sacred texts, and therefore, people may say, well, they're just trying to tell a good story. But not really, because if you look at ancient Sanskrit texts, like the, anyway, I could give you the names of them. But if you look at these ancient Sanskrit texts, um, 
they talk about bad things, they talk about moral failures, about societal failures, about failures of leadership. It's not, it's not just all rosy. And so, but they do talk about uh, sustained historical periods in which, for example, there were animal rights, there were human rights. Uh, there was monarchy, but it was constitutional monarchy and people had freedom of speech. So in one of the most important ancient texts, Mahabharata, you find that if people thought the king was uh, just a bad guy, they could they would just go out into the center of the capital and say the king's a bum. And it wasn't off with their heads. They were allowed to do that. How did the kings respond to this? They would call their ministers and say, we better get our act together or the people are going to throw us out. In other words, kings could not punish people for criticizing the government. And uh, so we have all this testimony, but we also have third party testimony. About 22, 2300 years ago, there was a Greek ambassador to uh, the royal court of Pataliputra in what is today the Indian state of Bihar, Patna. And uh, it was a type of pan-Indian empire, not covering all of modern-day India, but a lot of it. And he wrote a book about India, you know, 22, 2300 years ago, called Indica, which means about India. And he, among other things, he says that unlike all the other countries he knows, there's no slavery. The only country he's ever seen. Unlike all the other societies he's seen, when there is war or a battle, no one will ever harm a non-combatant. Now, if you know your Roman history, if you know your Greek history, if you know your Middle Eastern history, if you know history of anywhere, uh, it was a standard technique in the olden days that if you laid siege to a city and the people didn't surrender, then that was really, you know, that was very annoying because it meant you had, uh, you know, you couldn't go home to your family. You had to stay there and lay siege and you had to fight and you might get killed. And some people were killed. So when you finally took the city, you expressed your displeasure by slaughtering all the men, enslaving all the women and, you know, just trying to communicate your displeasure. So, and this was a standard technique. This wasn't like, oh my God, it's like, you know, like Hitler was an aberration. No, this was kind of like, you know, ancient warfare for dummies. That's what you do. And we have, you know, histories, let's say, of Roman wars written by Romans who were alive at the time, contemporary historians. We have Julius Caesar was actually a great writer. I mean, apart from being a, uh, a tyrant, he's actually a really good writer. And, and he sounds very modern. It's funny because the, the Greco-Roman, the ancient Greco-Romans are much more modern in, in their thinking than a lot of the medieval cultures. So, or Tacitus and other people, that, that's just what people did. That didn't happen in India. Megosthenes explains that there can be a battle going on, a pitched battle, and there can be, let's say, a farmer who's plowing his field just down the road and totally safe. No one's ever going to harm him. It's like if you go to, let's say, a foot, an NFL game, a football game, or I, well, actually a college football. Let's say you go to a football game. You don't fear that one of the players in their team is going to jump into the bleachers and tackle you or, you know, thrash you against the, your seat or something. It doesn't happen. 
because unless someone is actually legitimately on the field as a player, no one's going to test them. So India, no slavery, uh, no harm to non people who are not voluntarily fighting. Uh, they have animal rights. They have animal hospitals. They have human hospitals. They have special ministries to protect uh, foreigners visiting there to make sure no one takes advantage of them. Huge percentage of the population is vegetarian. So it's um, the arts are highly uh, patronized. In other words, if, if you actually have some talent in the arts, you can, you know, the government will make sure you don't have to worry about money. You can do your art, you can do your music, you can write. And uh, it's a very interesting society. And it was actually based on this culture. So again, it's not like, oh my God, what if I take the blue Krishna pill? You know, what's going to happen? We actually know what happens when you practice bhakti yoga because we have thousands of years of history. So we actually know what happens when you practice bhakti yoga. And uh, I should also add, I, I taught a course on the history of Indian religion at the University of Florida for a few semesters. Uh, and I made the point that um, that for three reasons, India was, is probably the best place on earth to study the variety of human religion. For one thing, because they always had freedom of religion. I mean, obviously, if you live in a culture where you're not allowed to pursue your own religious or spiritual preferences, you're not going to get a lot of variety if everyone has to either belong to the state church or be tortured and killed. So it's not a great place to study the variety of human religious experience. So in India, going back to the oldest books, perhaps the oldest books in any language, like the Rig Veda, you find there's actually religious freedom and people, there's a recognition. There's one God that um, is worshipped in different ways by different people. By the way, the Greco-Romans also had this. It was called the Interpretatio Greca or the Interpretatio Romano, which was exactly what they had in India, namely the recognition that there's one God or one divine reality and different people in different cultures simply use different names, describe it in different ways, but they're talking about the same divine reality. And that's something which you find actually in Indo-European civilization. That liberal view ended when a Middle Eastern religion gained control of the Roman Empire, but that's another story. So uh, they had religious freedom and uh, they were spiritually inclined. India's always been a place where a lot of people are very interested in spiritual things. And the third point is that India uh, has always sustained a large population for the simple reason that up until very recently, uh, you needed agriculture to live. Hunting, hunters and gatherers are severely limited in the size their communities can form because their process of getting their basic necessities does not allow them to have large communities. Because if you go into a forest and start gleaning nuts or something, it's going to be gleaned out in a very short time. And if you go into a place, a forest and hunt, you know, you can basically you're going to kill everything in a short time. So you can't have large communities. So th then they talk about the agrarian revolution, that when people start doing agriculture, you can produce grains, grains can be stored, you can produce huge quantities of food, this sustains city life, therefore you have the rise of you know, urban dwellings and, and large-scale civilizations. 
But in any case, India has the by far the best natural system of irrigation in the world. If you just, you know, look up on your browser, India rivers, and you'll see there's no other place on earth like that that has so much natural irrigation, so much fertile land, every conceivable type of weather. You can go up to the Himalayas, you know, the top of the Himalayan mountains and get some of the coldest weather on earth. You can go to South India and get some of the hottest weather on earth. You can get everything in between. So because it was a city, a country that was extremely hospitable uh, to human dwelling, it always had a large population. It always had freedom and it always had an interest in spirituality. And so you get this extraordinary variety of religions. India is the only country in the world where Jews were never persecuted, by the way. So, um, and, and, and here's the, uh, the point I wanted to make in that sort of, uh, to use the crass modern metaphor, in that open marketplace of religious ideas uh, in which you had all these different competing views, every conceivable approach to spirituality competing openly, freely, the big winner over historical time, freely, without coercion, the big winner was Krishna. The big winner was Bhagavad Gita. It was Krishna. It was Bhakti Yoga. In fact, that's what happened to Buddhism in India. It eventually became it was sort of reassimilated back into the Sanskritic culture through, through, the, through Krishna consciousness. So what I mean to say is that if people are open-minded and spiritually inclined, there is there are historical forces that sort of lead them to Bhakti Yoga and Krishna because objectively it's uh it's really good <laughs> so anyway uh i'll maybe i'll stop here and um thank you very much for coming thank you for listening and <laughs> so if you have any questions i'll take a shot at it Yes, please. Oh, for those of you who don't know, I, I just published a novel. I'm a, yeah. It's awesome. What? It's awesome. <laughs> Actually, my no, my novel writing guru is Jane Austen. I should, I should give her credit for that. Yes. Oh, well, maybe we'll talk about that afterwards. Spoiler. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> Actually, when, when we're done here, uh, come over and we'll, I'll, I'll explain to you all about it, okay? <laughs> Anything else? Yes.
like different levels of attainment. Yeah. Right, right. Did you all hear that? No. Okay. Um, what's your name? Raja. Raja. Hey. That sounds like Sam. Um, Raja Leela said that in, in other religions we're familiar with, um, there are different levels of attainment. And is that true in Bhakti Yoga? Yeah, yes, of course. Um, in fact, and these levels are described, actually. There's one famous description of the different levels of Bhakti Yoga by a great, great teacher who, I remember one time before I went to Harvard, as a, as a graduate student, I, I gave a lecture there as a uh, bhakti yogi. I was invited to give a lecture at Harvard. And um, before the lecture, I was uh, speaking to the chairman of the Sanskrit and Indian Studies Department, which became my department later. Really nice guy named Gary Tubb, who now at the University of Chicago. And um, he was going on and on about how brilliant Rupa Goswami was. And I didn't prompt him. I didn't say, like, could you say something nice about my tradition? He was just inspired by it. He was saying that he was an intellectual giant of his time. He was a brilliant saint. And so he has a famous verse, which goes, uh, I'll translate it piece by piece. Ado means the beginning. Shadha, which faith. And uh, I should mention in Sanskrit that if you say faith in our culture, it generally means like, do you believe in God or something? But the word shraddha in Sanskrit has, is actually a little different. There is another word, astikyam, which means just to believe in God's existence, to believe that God exists. That's called astikyam. From the Sanskrit word asti, which means he or she exists. Actually, from the word asti, we have all these words like German ist, English is. Anyway, won't go through all the languages. So, um, so the word shrad, shrad means like the heart, and ta means to play. So to really put your heart into something is the word shradha. So he says in the beginning, although you have to have at least some inkling or some idea that there's something good here. this something Herman and the Hermits? Something tells me I'm into something good. <laughs> I guess your age, you don't know Herman and the Hermits. Yeah, that was a 60s group. Anyway, he had, a, that was a, he had a song called, uh, my head is full of 60s music. He had, he had a song called Something Tells Me I'm Into Something Good. So if you have that sense that I believe there's value here, I think this could be good for me, then that's the beginning. And then Sadhu Sangha. Because you have that idea, uh, you want to associate with other persons doing that. It's just like if you decide you want to be a pole vaulter for some reason, then uh, you start to hang out with pole vaulters or pole vaulting coaches. So, Or if you decide, let's say, you want to be, a, um, say, an engineer, you have to associate with engineers. You have to learn engineering. So... If you have that basic idea, there's something good here, something which could enrich my life, and then you uh, you seek the association of, of persons who are doing this. And then he said, And then you actually begin your, you could say, devotional activities. It's like, let's say you're interested in engineering. 
you go to an engineering school and you start to practice. You start to practice engineering, do exercises and read books and so on. And so it's the same thing in bhakti yoga. You associate with people and then you start to practice. And then bhajana kriya anartha nivritisya. And because this is spiritual, he says the next stage is that you start to give up activities which you perceive to be useless, of no value. Activities which, uh, for example, lit, I mean, I can honestly say that when I was uh, many years ago a student at Berkeley, uh, started my, under, my first several years undergraduate at Berkeley, actually I was in the middle of all that political stuff. My picture even came out on the front page of the Oakland Tribune in the middle of a riot. <laughs> anyway, so I, I wasn't rioting, I was just kind of... Anyway, so... Um, when I, at a certain point, I, I had the, a very strong feeling that I was doing a lot of useless things. And, you know, I was engaged in a lot of activities that just weren't really taking me anywhere. Just because, you know, you can't be, you can't live, no man is an island, so you have to have some friends. So I would go and do things because you can't object to everything that your friends want to do. But I just had this general impression that I was kind of wasting my time. And that there were much more important things to do in life. And so that's an art and a shot. You start to give up activities that just you realize aren't going to take you anywhere. And then to Tony Stan, then you start to advance. You start to become really good at bhakti yoga. And, uh, and then it goes on. And then you reach higher and higher levels. Where's the girl that asked the question? Oh, there you are. Yeah, yeah. So, Anartana Bhittisat, the Tonista, but Ruchis, and then you really start to enjoy it. You actually discover this, you know, often in Eastern tradition, they'll talk about an ocean of bliss. But you really do start to discover this unlimited happiness. It's like, let's say you form a relationship, you become attached to someone, and you go through the euphoria, you know, with like all, all the endorphins are firing. And then generally relationships settle down into sort of a calmer state and you're not like thrilled at every moment. And, but the nature of spiritual pleasure is that it does increase forever. It just, it, it keeps increasing forever because you've tapped into something which is infinite. If you are deriving your most important happiness in life from something which is limited, your happiness must be limited. You can't fix it. You can say, okay, I'll get a new relationship or we'll go, we'll do counseling or, but the fact is that if you have a finite object of pleasure, your pleasure will always be finite. And if you have an infinite source of pleasure, your pleasure will be infinite. So, and, and then you develop pure love. Yes. How I? Oh, that's thank you. <laughs> I, as I said, I was a student at Berkeley. I was kind of, I would say, frustrated if not disgusted with materialism. In fact, at one point, I was so just kind of tired of of the material. Sorry, it's so hard. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Yeah, you're good.
at one point I was so frustrated that I, I literally looked at the map because I saw a Peace Corps table. You know, they, they were, Peace Corps was kind of recruiting on campus at Berkeley. And so I found the place was farthest away from where I was, which turned out to be Micronesia. In the South Pacific side, so I said, I'm going to go to Micronesia, get away from everything. And then my, my old brother was also a student at Berkeley. He kind of came over one day, put his arm around his shoulder and said, can we talk about this idea of you're going to Micronesia? So anyway, uh, I didn't go to Micronesia. And then I went to Ber uh, I went to Europe. I did my summer thing in Europe. Traveled. I went to the, you know, I went from the Arctic Circle to North Africa, even uh, rode a motor scooter off a cliff on a Greek island and survived somehow. Hardly a scratch. True story. My girlfriend in the back of the scooter. And um, she, she lived too. Yeah, she fell on the roadside and actually broke her um, her leg. She blames herself because she, I mean, I didn't blame her, but she said because she was taking all these diet pills, which in those days were really, would really mess up your nervous system. And so she was kind of, ah, look out, look out, look out. And I was, anyway. I didn't blame her, but she kind of blamed herself. But so I did all that. And then I came to a conclusion. I came to a formal, you could say official decision. because I was looking for something better. And I was taking a train back from uh, I went North Africa, Morocco, and I was coming back on the train, going back to Madrid to catch a train to Paris. And I decided that Europe was just um, a, a, a more historical, more cultured form of the same animalism that I was experiencing in California. The people were basically selfish. People weren't really thinking serious about serious things. And I made a vow on the train in Spain. I, I, I made a vow that when I got back to America, I had to stay in college because of the draft. I didn't want to go to Vietnam. So for all the silliness of uh, my experience in Berkeley, it was much better than, you know, getting my throat cut in Vietnam for a war, I was, I suppose, anyway. So I went back there. I made a vow and I wrote in my journal that when I got back to California, I was really going to focus on trying to find God, trying to find whatever was the highest truth. And I didn't just want some experience like LSD or something. I wasn't looking just for, I actually wanted to attain a higher state of consciousness and just live there like every day I'm in that higher state of consciousness and I keep going I understand I wanted a map of reality I wanted a map of reality and I wanted to actually realize it experience it and um, so when I got back I started investigating and I was open-minded I wasn't fanatical at all I mean I would talk to anyone who claimed to have knowledge about God about the soul. I talked to people from all the different religions and I respected them. I felt that anyone who would actually go out in public and talk about God has a certain courage and a certain piety. And so I didn't think any of them, I didn't think there was one truth. I knew that all these people in their own ways are connected to God. I never thought for a moment there's only one thing and everybody else is bad or wrong. I never thought that. But when I, when I came to the Bhakti Yoga parade, um, <laughs> I, I, I just had this experience that these people are actually in higher consciousness. These people have a serious discipline practice. 
they're not, you know, they're really, it, it, this is really about higher consciousness. And then when I read the philosophy, I read Bhagavad Gita. I went home to LA for the summer and, uh, and I read Bhagavad Gita. And, and when I read that um, description that we are qualitatively one with God, but quantitatively different, God is infinite. We're infinitesimal. I just shouted Eureka. I knew that's it. That's the perfect ontology or philosophy of existence because I was exposed to monism. The idea that we're all God, you know, which when you first hear that, it's like, wow, that, that's really mind blowing. But when you think about it, wait a second, if I'm God, why do I have to go to the dentist? And, you know, and, and why does that pretty girl not want to dance with me? And so, you know, all the frustrations of youth. And so, so I, I, I realized that uh, I'm not really, if I'm God, then, you know, it's a, it, it's a bad day for God. So, <laughs> and yet I also was not satisfied by this sort of um, severe dualism that you tend to find from religions that come from the Middle East. Like we fall so, sh fall so short of the glory of God that, you know, you little twit or... <laughs> You know, or, or or even one of my favorites says, you know, no one has ever seen God. No one will ever see God. If if it's really true that God never showed himself or herself or themselves to anyone, then God would really need serious psychiatric help. <laughs> because imagine, let's say you have a child someday and you just decide I will never allow my child to see me. That's sick. <laughs> and so, you know, I... I was going on the premise that God is not sick, sick, sick. And if you're a parent, you know, if you're a father or mother, your greatest pleasure is to have your child see you. And as it, as your little baby grows, the day comes when the child really sees you, is really looking at you, and really, you know, cognitively developed to the point of understanding you're another person, and, and I love you. And, and that's the greatest joy for a parent. And so to say that the Supreme Parent is like, you know, weird like that. And also beauty, like, like you know, we are attracted to beauty. So why can't there be infinite beauty? If we find degrees of beauty, I mean, you can say, you know, everyone's beautiful, but, you know, everyone that ever went to a party studies the degrees of beauty in the room. I mean, you know. <laughs> real world stuff and so and so if we it, it's just like for example if you say that uh chapel hill is north whoops sorry raleigh sorry about that if you say that raleigh if you say raleigh is north of orlando that is only intelligible in relation to a north pole if there was not a north pole it would be meaningless to say that Raleigh is north of Orlando. And so in the same way, if you say this is more beautiful, that could only make sense if there's some ultimate absolute beauty. And so if you study, if you study the universe, you know, just look up online those highly magnified pictures of snowflakes, of sand grains, which are unbelievable, of insects. I mean, if you just study highly magnified pictures of insects, it's way, way beyond the famous interplanetary bar scene in, in Star Wars. 
you've ever seen that. I mean, insects are, I mean, insects, if you look at big blown up pictures, you'd almost think that God was on LSD when he created them. So, so if you look at insects, if you look at anything, we live in a universe of art. We live in a universe of art. They've taken the, the, the sound that crickets make, you know, they do their legs together. And what they've done is they've slowed down the sound so that by the same ratio as, let's say, a, a, a cricket life, they don't live very long. Say a cricket life to a human life. So human life is so many times, lives so many times longer, so many years longer, so much time. So by that same ratio, if you listen to the sounds that crickets make, it actually sounds like Gregorian chants. So who's doing all this? Who is rewarding virtue? If you have, if you practice virtue, if you seriously try to be a good person, you know that when you do the right thing, it makes you happy. Why did? And that's not just because of some you know idiotic theory that uh, well, no, just because people who were programmed by blind evolution to have a certain neurology where when they did virtuous things, you know, it, it, it made them happy because communities that felt that way had reproductive advantages. Actually, the truth is the opposite. Historically, if you study real history, communities that are always virtuous tend to have reproductive disadvantages because the tribe next to you doesn't feel that way and they have no qualms about massacring you. So, uh, Anyway, so in so many ways, we live in a, in a universe in which virtue is, is somehow uh, prominent, metaphysical, non-empirical virtue. Beauty is everywhere. Art is everywhere. They've now found, for example, I mean, I'm, I'm not disputing the fossil record, but if, if you look at Darwin's conception of biology, Darwin lived a very long time ago. 150 years ago. In terms of biology, that's like millions of years ago. And so if you look at where biology was at Darwin's time and where biology is now with microbiology, it's like, you know, it, it, it's like a horse and buggy compared to, you know, a Mars rover. And so we now know that human, that living organisms are millions of times more sophisticated than Darwin ever imagined. We know that they're like little computers, little engines inside cells. We know that they're, so again, it's becoming more and more absurd to say that it all just came by itself. In fact, if, if you follow contemporary intellectual history, I don't know if you do, but uh, there is a, there's a full revolt going on, not by just, you know, intelligent design people or religious people, but by scientists saying that there's a revolt against the Darwinian notion of, of unguided evolution. And it's spreading. It's spreading to, to biologists. It's spreading to um, philosophers. It's spreading to, you know, people, that to neuro, neurologists. Because it's becoming more and more absurd to say, because, because the more complex an organism is, the more complex anything is, the probability that it's self-assembled or, you know, just by natural things like, let's say, the sun shone and it rained and there was some seismic shaking and, uh, and you get these, like, ridiculously sophisticated computers that are far, far beyond our computers. And all you need is, you know, rain, sun, wind and little seismic activity and, 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 a, and a time span.
it's it's absurd. The probability turns out to be almost infinitely improbable. It, it's like ten to the God only knows, you know, what the you know to the tenth to the eightieth. It's like an absurd number. So, if you look at all of that, then oh, sorry, back to my narration. So I was looking for that. I mean, I mean, to me, it was self-evident. I had experienced that there is a higher intelligence, even within me, that's not me. That there's some higher intelligence, some higher being that's guiding me somehow. And and I proved it to myself by different kinds of just experiments. The fact that I mean, so anyway. Um, so I was not looking for a religion. I should add that. You know, my parents gave me a religion and. I actually experienced God and the religion my parents gave me and people were really nice to me. So I wasn't looking for a religion. I was looking for a science, a spiritual science. I was looking for higher consciousness. And I was not sectarian. I was not fanatical. I was just in a methodical, rational way, looking for a science of God, a science of, of everything, a metaph metaphysical science. And then when I found it, I, uh, I began to practice it in all my experiences. I've been doing this now for, um, oh my God, 2021, isn't it? Um, so for, I've been doing this now for um, almost 52 years. I started when I was like one. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, yeah, so I've been doing this and I, as you, I mean, I'm like a, you know, everyone has their propensities. I'm, I'm a rational type person. I'm, you know, I really things, I need things to be reasonable for me. If it's not reasonable. I just can't really consume it. And so all my experiences have exactly matched what was supposed to happen. So I'm a, a satisfied customer. So it's getting a little late. Anything else? I can. I mean, be happy if you have any question. Or... So thank you all very much. It's really a pleasure. You guys are the, the young people are really the hope for this planet because you know you're young and you have your whole lives ahead of you. And uh, if this planet's going to make it, it's going to be because of good people like you. So thank you. precious time to come here and share knowledge. It was very convincing, like, at least to me, like, Mara's <laughs> mind is like, just makes complete sense. Like, it's just uh, wonderful. And uh, well, thank you. It's, uh, thank you so much, Maharaj. My pleasure. Thank you all very much.